Hi, this is Dan. And this is Sarah. And we'd like to welcome you to PDPAL. A monthly podcast about topics in pediatric palliative medicine. The views in this podcast are ours alone, and they do not represent our respective institutions. They do not constitute medical advice. Over the course of doing this podcast, you know, we just did the retrospective. We've had the luck of developing some really great relationships with some really great PD pals. And so today is a return guest, Dr. Julie Hauer, who actually reached out to us with the idea of this episode. So why don't we let her introduce it? My name is Julie Hauer. I am faculty at Boston Children's Hospital and I provide clinical care for children with neurological impairment that includes long-term care and respite care. And I've been involved with this patient population now for 28 years. So I'm delighted to be with both of you today. Welcome we- back. Thank you. I almost want to start with how did the idea for this episode come to you? Because we're used to episode ideas coming to us, but this one really came beautifully sealed and packaged into our inbox from you. <laughs> so we're wondering, what was the spark? Yeah, so the spark was actually because when you had contacted me about the growing list of medication options and how do we make decisions about using them, I know it was prompted by a recent question about um, self-injurious behavior. For me, that really prompted thinking much more broadly about the entire population of children with impairment of the central nervous system and that They are a group with multiple comorbid problems, multiple presentations of symptoms that get categorized in different ways in multiple medications and non-pharmacologic. And so it's for me, it's always the how do you take the chaos and try to make order out of that? In addition, I think of it as this is a population of children that is, when we really think about it, is a rare group. And it's a group with multiple etiologies. So we're kind of tasked with similar problems in different children and different options of management. The other part that because we've had this email dialogue is you also had a really great question of we talk about the art and science of medicine. And to me, this represents that duality. I really like because it got me thinking about a term we just take for granted. And I realized that this gets at the art of how we create a therapeutic alliance with parents. And then the other part I love about the art of medicine is it's also the art of intuition that parents bring into the mix and that we respect it and we embrace it. And again, if it also has some scientific merit, so it's like pain management is pharmacologic and non-pharmacologic. We give equal recognition to both um, parts in these complex decisions. I'm particularly glad you brought up intuition because as you were talking about art and science, I was trying to think about what is the difference and what are the things that we do that are artistic and what are the things we do that are scientific and intuition is one of the things that seems to fall in the category of artistic, right? It's not, you know, how do you know your child is uncomfortable? I just know, I feel it. This is what my body and soul are telling me, and I couldn't tell you how I know. Whereas sometimes parents are very scientific, and they'll say, well, when he does this with his face and coughs this way and his heart rate goes up, then I know. And so there is this blend of art and science. I guess I'm interested in how intuition plays into this, both from the parental side and I guess from the clinician side. 
because we're doing a lot of kind of intuitive artistic practice as well sometimes. Yeah, I love how you describe that, Dan. What came to mind for me is that I'll actually describe as two parts. One is I do feel an obligation to weigh out information that helps then order my strategy options. And that then I can start with a suggestion with parents. And it's I'm kind of intentional about the the word, the difference between a recommendation versus a suggestion. But for me, that is I'm demonstrating my commitment to assessment and management. But then it's a suggestion with the parent being prepared that it might actually make sense to go with the second option on my list. It's scientific, but then there's an intuition part that comes out in conversation. What you're talking about is art, like the art of medicine. But art is not just intuition, right? Art is intuition married to technique and skill. A painter doesn't just throw paint at the canvas and and call it art, right? Even when they're throwing it at the canvas, like they're throwing it in a very planned and thoughtful way, right? There's a reason behind each splatter. Yeah, I think what I... I'm hearing in what you're saying is that it's maybe not so easy to separate the art and the science. And I realize we're getting really philosophical here rather than very concrete. I want to be wary of that. Sarah, I, I'm going to hand this to you because you're good at like bringing me back down to earth. <laughs> I think we need that. Well, I just and then I apologize say- in advance because I'm going to add even two more words to this hodgepodge we're creating, art, science, and intuition. I'm also going to add experience, because I think, Julie, you mentioned your 28 years and how your experience drives that intuition. And I'm going to add culture, because I also think in pediatric palliative care, in the absence of some of the concrete science that we wish we had, we have a little bit of a culture about how we approach these medications and how we use these medications. And in the absence of experience, I recall being a new attending first attending, doing this practice in my hospital and being asked, well, why are you using gabapentin this way? And like, let me know why you're using clonidine this way and being like, great, I'm going to go to the literature and I'm going to bring things back to show everybody. And then, you know, swimming a little bit in a shallower pool than I was expecting, trying to piece together how the culture of our approach to some of these medications came about. I actually love the words that both of you identified, and it's actually important because it reorients us back to that iterative process of decision-making, because ultimately we're trying to create certainty in the moment. This is, for me, my goal is always to both own uncertainty and kind of embrace it while also bringing certainty to it because it's unbearable to exist always in the uncertain world. This might be an opportunity to ground ourselves back in one of our original basic questions. In the context of one of the things that I love about this work is there is a tremendous amount of variety and a tremendous amount of creativity that we bring to the symptom management. At the same time, when we're in a conundrum, and this seems a work rife with conundrums, where do we turn for inspiration? So I'd say first start with knowing that when I'm a clinician and I have a patient with an active need that I should be creative because if there was an easy answer, we would have already identified it because usually it's more that there's already a couple of medications in use for different problems. So now it starts to feel like it's falling apart and people tend to be recognizing multiple things simultaneously, such as I also want to be mindful not to just throw medications at it, which can create polypharmacy as an example. So in terms of the literature, some of the things that rise to the top for me are that 
First, it's a rare group of children. Second is to make a distinction between a child with a known diagnosis, whether it be a genetic condition, a neurodegenerative condition, et cetera, versus a child that has global impairment of the central nervous system. There are some conditions such as juvenile Huntington's disease, as you brought up, or um, juvenile ALS. We certainly can pull from the adult knowledge of what symptoms and how are those symptoms managed. The second is neurodegenerative conditions that present in adolescents that don't have an adult equivalent other than that they have the equivalent of adults who present much later in life with dementia. So I kind of periodically call that literature to understand if I have a child with, say, San Filippo syndrome, where they have a degenerative process that's equivalent to adult dementia in that they had a fairly well-formed cerebral cortex, and now they're starting to have loss of the function that comes with the cerebral cortex, and they have loss of inhibition, they have agitation, they have aggressive behaviors. We can kind of pull from the adult literature to at least understand what are the ongoing studies that look at agitation. And I'll get back to an example I, I looked at a couple weeks ago versus a child that has more general SNI. And then the final thing that I also think is really, really important is, is it a child that has either a known rapidly progressive condition, or they have a clinical story with rapid decline or some degree of decline where we are putting them in a category where they may have a shorter length of life at this point in their trajectory. They may be closer to end of life versus the child who has SNI with a lot of symptoms, but possibly a more stable um, health status where they're going to be on treatment for years, if not sometimes decades. And I mention that because um, this is where the literature from cancer, I think we have to take with a huge grain of salt. The etiology of symptom generation in cancer is more localized, for lack of a better term, versus SNI has multiple comorbid reasons for the same features. And in cancer, either the cancer is cured and symptoms improve, or the child is entering end of life with active symptom management needs. The time period of use of medications is much shorter. It's not to say not to use some of the literature, but to have a caveat about it that it's what do we know in terms of safety and long-term safety and efficacy if a child might be on a, a given treatment for years as opposed for months. Those are kind of the things that I think of from the literature. The other thing, so I don't forget to say, I also think that because of the rarity that it's not that any one person is going to have the right approach. I think the more important part is for teams to think through such information to say, okay, why don't we kind of have our checklist of information so that we have a consistency? And I think the consistency is more beneficial in terms of then both a process that's applied, but also then consistency allows better learning as there are more patients within a given team so that it's not just dependent on an individual's approach and it doesn't curtail an individual, the intuition part of it and the dialogue with the parents. But I think that we all learn better by having some of that consistency in terms of the iterative process of learning and then also what we share with others. I also think I hear you mention 
or allude to the iterative process of trials of medications and the iterative process of coming up with a plan with a family that has stages, that has checkpoints, that isn't going to be a one and done medical fix. Because as you alluded to, if there was an easy fix, they probably would not be in your office sort of talking through some of these complex things. Where that always feels like a tension point for me is this question of off-label medication use and medication safety. We pull a lot of data and case studies and safety reports from the adults, and very, very few of it seems like it can apply to our patients. And so I'm wondering how you approach that, both in discussion with family and also in your own management plan. Yeah. So this is an arbitrary approach, but I've ended up making a distinction between medications that we commonly use and medications to consider. So the consider category is the newer literature, such as ketamine, dexmethamidine, and cannabinoids versus gabapentin, tricyclic antidepressants, and methadone. Gabapentin, really the main benefit was that there was already studies in children with seizures so that there was a lot of, at least more than most medications, and specifically in children with SNI, there was a lot of information about safety, obviously much less about efficacy in terms of pain management, other than it's certainly a commonly used medication now. Tricyclic antidepressants, because they've been used in children for many years for different conditions. So it adds another layer of, we know information about safety, we know information about drug effects to be aware of, and drug interactions particularly, and then its potential for efficacy, which is for pain management, really is derived mostly from adults. I just say methadone purely because it's a long-acting liquid option for children who have G-tubes and also the neuropathic, um, as well as the mu receptor component. I'll share ketamine and dexmethamidine to think of applying the same lens for either acute or chronic symptom management in children with SNI. And, and I put it in consider because I love the literature showing the role of both medications in different scenarios, while also just being mindful that it's the long-term usage that we have less information about. And then dexmethamidine because it's used as an infusion in the hospital setting, so we have some sense of its use. And, and now with the option of intranasal, it becomes an as-needed option. And then in dementia, there's now a very preliminary study in using dexmethamidine in conditions with dementia in adults using this oral disintegrating thin film that can be placed in the mouth and very quickly disintegrates. But that's an example where this is a medication now where we can extrapolate from adult data for some pediatric conditions, but it's new in its study. It's like in phase one or two, it becomes a consideration. And then, and then within all of that is what is the condition and what's the severity of the need and what's been already tried. And I'd say the art comes into when we're balancing our decisions of what can we use in the moment as an as needed while we're also thinking of, does it make sense to add another medication that is scheduled to try to decrease the frequency, severity, and duration of events that are occurring? So I have to be honest, I think I'm kind of sharing what feels like can become kind of part of a checklist process, but I still don't have it in this 
simple way to just kind of go through, because I know I kind of been describing different things that are interrelated for consideration. So what it seems like is it's less of a hierarchy. It's less you always have to figure out these things in disorder. It seems more like a Venn diagram for any given agent you want to introduce or change you want to make. Safety is obviously a crucial part of it, but that's only sort of one circle in the Venn diagram. Is it effective? Is it available? Is it in a formulation that the patient can take? Does it fit with the family's goals? and their understanding of the condition, there are probably a bunch more circles. And I think the thing that hovers above that Venn diagram is some sort of other amorphous shape that I'm going to call anecdote. And here's a situation I actually find myself in quite often. I want to get your guys' thoughts on it. A patient with a child with a rare condition is in a Facebook group with other children who have that rare condition. Let's say there's 30 or 40 of them. And that family will come to me and say, this other child benefited from this medication. There's no other case report. There's no data, but there's this anecdote. And it's an anecdote that doesn't come from within my trusted medical circles, but it comes within the family's trusted circles. And how do I approach that? I love both. I Dan, I love how you describe because you're absolutely right. There's not just this linear process. It's how can we best identify all the components to factor in. And then, Sarah, I love you uh, identifying parent groups are so remarkable in terms of the richness, and it also creates a challenge for us in a good way. It's a good way because um, we also learn uh, what has been tried. Sometimes it's because it's something used in another country because parents might connect from other countries through these parent organizations because of the rarity of the circumstance. I certainly have encountered this at times. I actually think that this is where I feel like palliative care has a unique expertise. I feel like it kind of gets back to then the Venn diagram of starting with safety. So for me, it can be thinking through what do we know in terms of safety, if anything, if it's something that's particularly unique that it actually hasn't been studied within medicine because it's in the other spaces. But again, for me, I come back to just acknowledging my responsibility to use my training while also supporting a parent's preference. It's kind of that honest dialogue that I'm neither trying to take control away from a family or discount their, again, it might be a pretty strong preference because like you said, they might actually have a very strong trust of, I mean, this is their support network. One other thing that, Dan, you mentioned about the Venn diagram, what else to include? The one other thing that I would include is coming back to the basics of what are our goals of treatment? One is an overriding one, which is Avoiding sedation versus allowing sedation for the short term versus sedation is not the concern based on where a child's at. And then it's also the goals of treatment of what symptoms are we managing? Because it is often multiple symptoms that impact each other. So for me, it's always coming back to what's in greatest need of management. Is it muscle spasms, dystonic movement, impaired sleep, episodes with pain behaviors? GI symptoms, feeding intolerance, autonomic control features. So that way I can prioritize and then that will also be a factor in, again, limited evidence, but at least some evidence to guide 
I almost feel like in these visits, what I hear you doing is creating almost a table with two different axes. And one axis is going to be the symptoms involved. Dan's smiling, I think, because this is getting more scientific and less artsy than his Venn diagram. But one no, axis- I'm, I'm smiling because we're in a podcast, which is an audio medium, and we just keep gesturing with our hands to each other to create <laughs> these visual images. And I really wish this was like we could be drawing on a chalkboard or something as we're talking. But do your best to follow along and imagine with us. <laughs> All right. Imagine with me, listeners, two axes. One is symptoms, right? Very rarely do people come with you with one and done symptom complaints. Usually it's these are our concerns. These are the things impacting the quality of life. And you almost sort them by how impactful they are to quality of life. And you say, okay, well, we're going to start with these most significant ones. And on the other axis, you have here are medications in a order of which I'm going to talk through based on your goals, based on everything else. It feels prudent to try this one first, maybe because it is more available or safer or any of the above. Easier to trial if we're thinking this is something we can figure out if it's efficacious in just a couple of days. And then you rank those out with the family. And then you end up with this really complicated, almost web of symptom management. Well described. In our work, we also rely on both auditory and visual constructs to orient us to how we are interfacing with a parent. And then the parent themselves is also going to be orienting from some degree of preference of auditory versus visual. So I think using both modalities, I actually really appreciate that you brought this up, Sarah, because I think it's that important. Also from a how we orient to information and how we then process that information that, again, gets at that shared decision-making. I cannot tell you how many times it has been useful to show parents that graph of function and health status over time, what we sometimes call the roller coaster graph. Um, Sometimes seeing it visually is what they need to understand what we're saying. And you can talk about baseline until you're blue in the face and you just show a picture. It's like, oh, I get it now. Couldn't agree more. I'm so glad you took this thread of conversation and The reason why this is so important is it's also relevant to symptom management because that visual baseline that you see it sometimes for parents that it just creates clarity of, oh my gosh, this is where my son's at. And how then that is a further aspect of the regoling process of what's my son up against? What have we been talking about? So that it also becomes part of symptom management prioritization because of where a child's at. For each problem that exists, um, this the two axes you were describing, Sarah, I also want to be very intentional about what medications are already in use for a given problem. The more medications in use for a given problem, the less likely you'll get added benefit by focusing on management of that problem versus the other things that can exacerbate it, particularly chronic pain. And so My simplistic model is to think in terms of alternating between a neural problem such as spasticity that we know it exists based on criteria versus chronic neuropathic pain that we can't test for. But if I think in terms of alternating, then I'm making sure that I'm both treating spasticity as one problem and then giving interventions for a neuropathic pain source that can exacerbate and make treatment-resistant spasticity. The second thing gets at the trajectory. One thing I find important to be mindful of is the more interventions that are used in a child that's having less benefit from multiple interventions, I want to entertain at some point 
are we at a point in a child's life where less is more would be more beneficial? And I, again, I think that this is something we become familiar with in palliative care because we know that starting an intervention is as important as considering when to not continue a given intervention. And then we see some children do better after we've peeled back on things. It's an important point to think about how are we going to know when something's not helpful or something's not working, especially something that titrates over weeks. Yeah. And so I think when my trainees are with me, I say, okay, what is the medication we're going to start? How are we going to know if it's working? How will we know if we need to go up? How will we know if we need to go down? How will we know if we need to come off? And it's sometimes hard to come up with those five. Yeah. And I find myself in situations sometimes where I wonder, is this not working because I need to go up or is this not working and I need to come off? And there's a strange tension there where I feel like I'm in front of two roads that are in direct opposition to each other in some ways. One thing I would look at is how many medications are in use for each individual problem in our goals of treatment symptom list of things. Second is um, how many drugs are in use that have overlapping mechanisms of action. And uh, probably the biggest one is anticholinergic. When we look at the tables that indicate drugs that have low, moderate, or high anticholinergic effect, it can be astounding, the number of drugs. And then also what drugs are the oldest drugs that always had kind of mixed benefit? But because they've been around for decades, they get used commonly. And so I'd certainly say benzodiazepines is the biggest one that falls into that. And also that children are potentially on several because different providers have different reasons to use different benzodiazepines and children have multiple providers. If there's a methodical process and there's a consistent application of it, what makes sense to do will make sense. It is hard and it's important to think of it because it's as important to consider not continuing something in terms of being a therapeutic decision as it is to utilize something. What it means is an intentional and iterative process of describing that with parents at the beginning, but the emphasis changes. At the beginning, it's an emphasis of benefit. As more interventions are used, more acknowledgement of more additional medications are much less likely to, to gain more benefit. Part of it is coming back to what non-pharmacologic and what non-stimulating things to consider. And then also, particularly, I do think those are the times to also think, does it make better sense to have a trial of total feed reduction as a therapeutic trial before adding another medication, depending on how many are in use? So one thing I've found helpful is to use the very definition of intractable for medication-resistant seizures, that two or more drugs where seizures continue. Then I use the same with any group of medications. If I'm using a group of medications for neuropathic pain, if I'm using a group of medications for spasticity, for dystonia, for all of these things, so that it's also exploring in a sensitive way that I always have a goal for the most reduction possible while I'm acknowledging when that might be less likely to happen and what might be other strategies. So that's when I actually shift more to more of an emphasis of how do we manage breakthrough episodes and trialing other PRN medications as they've expanded in options. I kind of had this joke for a long time that when I start a medication in a child on multiple meds, I have this soft goal to see if I can trade one for another potentially. 
One example would be a child who had brain injury, whether it be traumatic or anoxic. And I do sometimes wonder if the acute phase management looks different than the chronic management, and that has not been delineated in literature at all. It gets kind of glommed together. So um, it's common for me to de-prescribe some of the medications that were used in the first three months as they enter more their chronic phase. And a common theme I see is more benefit as neuropathic meds are added, and then some of the initial category of paroxysmal sympathetic hyperactivity, some of those medications that seem like they can get weaned off if symptoms are lessened with new additional medications. If I may make a plug, though, the one thing that I still see is that it's very understandable if, let's say, gabapentin started and it's the first drug that results in significant symptom reduction, and then they have persistent sedation. And so, understandably, the first thought is we need to now wean off that medication that was just started. We actually have to rethink that the medication that finally achieves symptom control is not the drug to wean. We have to look at the other drugs in use that make better sense to wean off, that aren't adequately modifying the symptom it was trying to target, but now the sedating effect has been unmasked as there's symptom reduction. The symptoms were keeping the child in a state of arousal that now that that arousal has been removed, the excessive arousal, the sedating effect of other medications can be unmasked. Now, that was terrible because it's kind of off topic and I sometimes have my agenda items. <laughs> That's okay. I know we always say we shouldn't have an agenda, but this is a podcast, so agendas are totally fine. You can end it with, oh, and then we felt obligated to make sure Julie gets her one agenda item on this podcast. <laughs> well, actually, I was going to end it a different way okay. um, because you said the word plug and it reminds me that you have a book coming out and I would like to plug that book on this podcast. Oh, well, th that's so kind of you, Dan. And I I will, I sheepishly, I wouldn't write it if I didn't think it would be of benefit. The other book I wrote was came out 10 years ago in 2013. So the difference from the first one is this is only written for clinicians. It's not intended to be a hybrid for parents and clinicians. The first one was to try to capture a larger audience knowing that parents had needs and clinicians had needs. I'm proud of it. It says probably, I joke with my husband, it's as much my need to, again, corral together all information to feel like I, I can rest a little bit. I hope it's more than a useful sleep aid. <laughs> Non-pharmacologic sleep aids are always yeah. welcome. One area that was definitely expanded on is another, you know, like all the stuff we talked about with pain, it's all outlined in there. Feeding intolerance is a big one. That was a topic that when I was Dan and his team that we talked about as other examples. And while we're doing plugs for our listeners, many already know, and I know I think you were involved with this, Julie, but the Courageous Parents Network came out with NeuroJourney recently, which is a tremendous resource. And while your book is amplifying the medical side, this is amplifying the patient side. Uh, so I think it's neurojourney.courageousparentsnetwork.org, but we'll put that link in our show notes. Maybe I'll start with a confession. Every time we start an episode, I secretly hope we'll have some sort of clear algorithm or answer for me because I'm sort of an algorithm person. I like them. They make me comfortable. 
And I think when we went into this, I was hoping Julie would say, well, you know, you do this and you try this, you try it for this many days, and then you move on to this medication. And the third line is when you start to get into the adult data and you pull that, you know, I wanted something a little more concrete, but I think that gets to sort of the base of this conversation, which I really think was the tension between art and science that we find in pediatric palliative care. I agree. I think like we talked about a little bit, the fact that something is art, not science, doesn't make it less skillful or less technical. It's just a different approach. But if we really want to lean into that analogy, two artists talking to each other may be communicating in different styles. And that's one of the things that makes it hard. When I have a trainee looking to do fellowship, I say, go somewhere where you're going to meet a lot of different people with a lot of different styles. A cubist talking to an impressionist, talking to a brutalist, they're all going to have sort of different flavors to their styles. But the end is permission to do the creative work and to do the art. Absolutely. I'm not talking as someone who is trained as an artist, so I'm a little bit out of my depth here. But there are certain things that you learn that are the basics, the fundamentals of art. If we're going to bring your cubist and your impressionist metaphor forward, both of those artists have to learn how to use paint. They have to learn about light and shadow and about color, all those fundamental things. And then they take that and they create their own style influenced by the other styles of their teachers and of their colleagues and their peers. I think we do something similar in palliative care. We have three attendings on our team and our nurse practitioner and social worker experience whiplash every week when we change. And we're all three of us practicing the exact same science, essentially. But it's the art that's different. It's the style that's different. It's like going from one wing of the museum to the next wing of the museum to the next wing of the museum, back to back to back. And it's a little jarring. Some museums may have all of the same style. Some museums may be a variety. And I think, you know, that's one of the funny things about pediatric palliative care teams. Is they're all different. And one of the things that's different might be just that composition of different styles. So it actually brings me back to something that we talked about in the retrospective episode. As you always say, Sarah, when you've seen one team, you've seen one team because pediatric palliative care teams are also different from each other. And I think maybe one of the reasons for that is because the work we do is so stylistic and it is so dependent on people's art. Thanks for listening. Our theme song is provided by Kevin McLeod. You can follow us on Twitter, where our username is at PDPAL. You can find the notes for this podcast and all of our episodes on pdpal.org. If you'd like to submit thoughts, objections, or ideas for future episodes, please reach out via the email on our website. This has been PDPAL. We'll see you next month. Is there a lot of chatter? A tremendous amount. You're just trying to express yourself. That's what art is all about, man. Self-expression. <laughs> okay, way to pull it back. Mm-hmm.